This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. A few years ago, I found myself running around the Amazon rainforest looking for poison dart frogs. I'd been fascinated with that animal for years, but I'd never seen one in the wild. Well, after about an hour of hiking, I saw one. And I got really excited, and I started inching closer to get a photo. And as I did that, my guide, whose name was Diego, he, he reached over and he grabbed me on the shoulder. It's more likely to jump away from you than to jump at you, he told me. But I wouldn't take the chance. So I teased him. I told him I just wanted to lick it. And he laughed, and he told me that that would actually be fine with him. But first, he said, give me your phone so I can take a video of you dying. We'll make lots of money on YouTube, and my village will be rich. Now, if you thought the poison dart frog was the most poisonous animal in the world, well, you're not alone. That's what I had heard, too, which is why I was out there in the rainforest looking for those little guys. But there are a lot of different ways to measure the deadliness of poison. Some kill faster, some kill more painfully, some kill more often. And some are very, very poisonous to some animals, but not at all to others. And it's that latter group that Charles Hannafin is interested in. Which is why when he recently returned from a research trip to Japan, he was coming with 700 micrograms of an extremely deadly toxin from an animal that people are more likely to associate with being adorable than being deadly. Charles Hannafin, welcome to Undisciplined. Thanks so lot for having me. I'm, I'm excited about having a chance to talk to you guys. Okay, so to get this conversation started, I wanted to talk about this toxin, tetrodotoxin. Usually, if people have heard about this before, it's because they've eaten a Japanese delicacy, right? Exactly. Tetrodotoxin is a really weird toxin, and it's also really cool because most people have heard about it either there's one or two ways. One is that they've heard about it through the fugu, the Japanese, the pufferfish that is a delicacy in Japan, and there's all the rigmarole about how to prepare it and, you know, and that it has the potential to be lethal. And then the other way that I find that people have heard about it is that this was something that came up a few decades ago in The Serpent and the Rainbow, where it was posited that it was part of the zombie powder in Haitian voodoo zombie sort of witch doctory as well. So people have heard about it in this weird way, but yeah, it's, it's a really weird toxin because of its sort of cultural aspects of it. And I want to know how you got obsessed with this toxin. Were you into voodoo? Were you into pufferfish? What was the thing? I would say that I got into it in part because I ended up being a frustrated PhD student and frustrated field biologist. So I got my PhD at Utah State University with Butch Brody, who was the department head. And when I first started talking to him about what I was going to be working on, he was coming to Utah State to take over the position of department head and head was somewhere else. And he was doing all this work down in Central and South America. And I had gotten in touch with him because I said, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to go to Central and South America and I want to go to the rainforest and I want to work on salamanders down there. And I talked to him, and, and he said, oh, I'd love to have you as a Ph.D. student, but some of my research is going to change, and, but we'll talk about it when you start at Utah State University. And so I did, and very rapidly it became clear that he said, well, my research is shifting, and I want to get back to studying this toxin that I've been studying for since he was actually an undergraduate, right? So he was one of the real 
forefront in studying this toxin in salamanders. And, you know, and I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, so I knew about these salamanders, and I knew that they were toxic. And he said, so what I really need is I want to work on this because there's this really cool system that I've been working on for a couple decades where these guys have this neurotoxin, and we know that this neurotoxin is really, really powerful, and really small amounts of it are deadly to almost anything, but there are these garter snakes that eat them. And he said, so there's this really interesting set of problems that I've kind of worked on, but I really need a student who's interested in working on it. I love this because, like, I hear that a a lot in this show, that, like, people... You know, they have some idealized version of how their scientific career is going to go. And then really they just sort of like fall into their mentor's line of research. But the interesting thing that happens is they come to love it just as much and even more so than the thing that they thought they were going to be doing. Exactly. So I'm really glad you brought that up. So much of science is making those connections and that kind of mentorship where – I mean, honestly, at those stages, you don't really know. So you you, you enter in and you start working with a mentor, and it really opens your eyes, right? And so in this case, it really opened my eyes to a really interesting sort of mix of ecology and evolutionary biology and natural products, chemistry and toxins and salamanders and field work and all of this other stuff. And, yeah, I got really interested in questions that were a lot deeper than just going out in the field and collecting animals, which was kind of, in a very naive way, almost how I was when I first started my Ph.D. program. And it really grew out of that. And, yes, I got more and more involved in, in this. I got more and more interested in the, in the questions. I got more and more interested in some of the technical aspects of it. And I got more and more interested in terms of just some of the things that we could do with this. So let's talk a little bit about this thing, this toxin. You mentioned that it's really, really deadly, that we can find it in salamanders and newts. When we talk about like how strong this toxin is, can you put that into context? How do you explain that, for instance, to students, how strong this toxin is? One way that you, you can explain to it is that you know, you can show them. So for humans, for example, a lethal dose of this would be a couple milligrams, which is... If you had a milligram of sugar, it would be the equivalent of a pinch, basically, of a pinch of salt, right? A pinch of this could be lethal. And so that's one way. Another way that I try to explain it is that some of these salamanders have enough toxin in them that a single salamander would have enough toxin in it that it could kill 20 or 30 adult humans. In one little cell, and these are like just a few inches, right? I mean, they're not very These are about an eight-inch an eight salamander, yeah. If it was from, and I'm going to say the right population, because that's how I think about it, but if it was from a certain population where we know that they have lots of toxin in their skin. Yeah, I mean, or I would put it in context of saying that it's typically listed as one of the 10 or 15 most deadly substances that human beings have ever discovered on the planet. And yet there are garter snakes that eat these newts, yeah. and, they're, and they're not affected. They are not killed, and in some cases they're not affected. Yeah, they can survive. A single snake, a single small garter snake, can survive a dose that would, as I said, kill 20 or 30 people. Yeah. And not only can they survive, but they actually can withstand a lot more of this toxin than even the newts can carry. How does that happen? 
So that's a good question, and that's one of the things that we're still working on. And this is work that, again, my mentor, Butch Brody, was really at the forefront of, and then I worked on it and made real contributions to it as well. This is one of the things that got us interested in this, is that we think that it's this it's coevolution, right? Coevolution is this process where two species are evolving in sort of tight linkage with each other over relatively long periods of time. And so in this case, what we think is that this is this has actually become one of the really best examples in the literature and in textbooks of what we call a coevolutionary arms race. And the metaphor is a very good metaphor. It's very simple. As newts became more toxic, the snakes became more resistant because they were tied to them. And then as the snakes became more resistant, the newts became more toxic, and so on and so forth. And so we have pretty good evidence that that's what happened. And one of the things that made it easy for the snakes is that one of the things that's interesting about the, the toxin is that it's a very precise toxin. It works on a set of proteins that are called voltage-gated sodium channels, and those are important because they're in nerves and muscles of all animals, but that's all it really interacts with. So one of the things that we're interested in is answering this question about how that happens in the channels, but what it looks like is that over long periods of time, these channels got mutations in them that allowed the channels to still work properly, but made it so that the toxin couldn't bind onto the protein and then wouldn't affect it. And garter snakes aren't the only resistant animals. I, the blue-ringed octopus is too, is that right? Yeah, blue-ringed octopuses are resistant as well, and we actually just published a paper about that. But blue-ringed octopuses also have tetrodotoxin in them. So they both carry it, and they're uh, maybe not immune to it, but like not affected by it. So and they actually so they have it in their skin, and they have it in their salivary glands, and the newts themselves are actually resistant as well. So one of the things that's happened is that you have animals that have this toxin that appear to be resistant, and the pufferfish also that have it are also resistant to it, right? And then you have animals that don't have it but also have evolved resistance to it. Okay, so this is fascinating because this toxin is in pufferfish, it's in newts, it's in octopus, which are also not affected by it. You and some colleagues also found it in flatworms. And this is all just so fascinating to me because what we're talking about here is a bunch of different animals that all went in really different directions a very long time ago in evolutionary history. And there are other animals, too, in the group that produces this toxin. Some are terrestrial and some are aquatic. And was there a common ancestor that was just oozing this stuff? Or did these animals come to develop it convergently? Or, or do we know the answer to that question? The answer to your question is we don't know exactly. It's very unlikely that there was a common ancestor that had it. And our evidence from looking at the resistance is that there's no broad commonality. So there's no shared common ancestor in octopuses or salamanders or snakes that had it. But within groups, there's some convergence. So for example, if you look in salamanders, if you look in the salamanders that have it, my work has shown that it is a common ancestor in the ancestor of all of the modern animals that have it that evolve resistance. And if you look at it in Garter snakes, it looks like it's happened multiple times, but there's some commonality. But yeah, it looks like what we're seeing is independent evolution of resistance that's happened multiple times. 
and then in multiple cases being resistant to it also means that you can have it then. And honestly, that's what keeps me busy into my into my career now. This, these are the questions that I still want to know the answer to is exactly how that happens because that's fascinating to me. I mean, it's amazing, right? Because, like, I've looked at the chemical map on this thing, and it's a really complex signature, right? I mean, like, it's a complex thing, and yet all of these different lineages of organism have come to develop this within their selves independently. That would keep me up at night just in awe and wonder. And it is for me, and you've you've nailed exactly, this brings us full circle, right? You asked me a question about, or at the beginning, about my interest level. Well, I mean, there you go, right? There's, for me, it's that awe and wonder about that that got me interested in this 25 years ago, I guess, and that still keeps me, you know, active and working on this stuff and really, you know, asking questions about it. And we still don't know how it's synthesized by the living organisms that have it. We don't know if newts produce it or if we just, we still don't know. We have a bunch of people that are working on it, but we still don't know the answers despite having people really trying to get at those answers for, you know, 30 or 40 years now. I wanted to get back to this question of the evolutionary arms race between these snakes and these newts. The newts get more toxic. The snakes develop this ability to withstand more of the toxin and on and on and goes. Right now, the snakes are ahead in the race, I guess. But I'm kind of wondering, like, they're so ahead at this point. At some point in evolutionary history, do the selective forces that are driving the newts to evolve just kind of go like, eh, you know what? Instead of expending all this energy creating more and more powerful toxins, we're just going to develop a different camouflage or learn to run faster or swim faster or something like that. Like, Do you think that we've reached that divergent point and that's why the snakes are so far ahead or... Is this theory just stupid on my part? <laughs> no, no, no. That's a, that's a really good question. We could get lost in a lot of theory about this, but one of the really interesting contributions to this idea of coevolutionary biology was made by John Thompson, who's at Santa Cruz, now about 20 years ago. Thompson was an ecologist, and he said, look, we understand that when we look at species on a landscape of what they're doing across the range of what they're doing, that they do different things in different places. I mean, because they're interacting with different species, the food is different. And so he said coevolution should be the same. And it turns out that he's probably right. So one sort of simple answer is that it's what we would expect. We would expect is that in some populations, it looks like they're still co-evolving, but in others, they may not be. But that doesn't mean that in a decade or in 50 years or in a thousand years that that will change. One of the things we know about evolution is that it changes over space and time. And what we see in the snapshot that we take right now isn't necessarily predictive of what it'll look like in 10,000 years. And so within this system, that's one possibility. But it's also possible that the coevolutionary interaction between these guys could be disrupted or may be disrupted in some areas where the snakes have become so resistant, because it may not matter. But it may be that the reason that we're seeing elevated levels of toxin is that it's still a really, really effective tool to prevent 
almost everything else from eating them. So it may be that in a lot of populations, it doesn't really matter what the snakes are doing because they just don't eat that many newts. And what's more important is that the newts aren't being eaten by raccoons or they're not being eaten by otters or they're not being eaten by birds or anything like that. To answer these questions, well, you need to get a hold of some of this toxin. And these news are from North America, right? But you recently went to Japan. Explain explain why. Because you didn't go there for the puffer fish, I think. There's a little chemistry here to explain this. So there's tetrodotoxin. And we know that shape and we know that form. And that's been pretty well studied. And that's actually a toxin. You can buy that commercially. It's used. One of the other things that's kind of weird about... Wait, wait, wait. You can buy that commercially? Like I could pick some up at the... Well, you you personally (laughs) couldn't, right? One could do it if you were authorized to work in a lab and had the proper permission. How do I get authorized? Because I want some of this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well... The CIA will probably have something, or the CDC will probably have some interest in that, too. Um, No, but, I mean, there are companies that will sell it to you. You used to be able to buy it from even, like, Sigma, from big chemistry companies. It's used experimentally to study the nervous system, and it has been for a very long time. So tetrodotoxin itself, you can buy and you can do experiments with it. And we've done that. So when we did all the work that we did with snakes, what we would do is we would buy commercial tetrodotoxin and we would inject it into the snakes and then we would run them on a racetrack and you could measure how resistant they were based on how it slowed them on a racetrack. And you can do all of these things with that. Snakes on a racetrack? Yeah. Come on. So, so... Yeah, and this was not my project. I helped with this, but this was other people that worked in my lab when I was a Ph.D. student. The idea here is that you have snake-resistant snakes, and then you have toxic newts. So the way that we measured the resistant snakes was that we would bring snakes into the lab, and we would have a long racetrack, a metal racetrack, with little sensors on it, and you could make them. Well, my Ph.D. advisor was the only one that could do this because he was a master at this. But he would run them on the racetrack, and he would find out what their fastest speed on the racetrack was, and then you would inject them with a known quantity of commercially available TTX of tetrodotoxin. And because it's a paralytic toxin, it didn't kill these things, but what it would do is it would slightly paralyze them. It would interfere with their nerve and muscles working properly, and it would slow them down. And the more it slowed them down, the less resistant they were to it. So you had this nice what we call the bioassay, which was just a fancy way of saying a nice way of measuring the resistance in it. And then you can actually analyze and look for TTX by doing something called HPLC, which is just an analytical chemistry technique where you can actually measure the toxin themselves. So that's what I did when I looked at the salamanders. And so you can do that. You can inject snakes with the toxin, and you can measure that. Now what we do is that in my lab with my partner, with my research partner, we don't inject the toxin into snakes, but instead what we do is we take the proteins that we know that the toxin's binding to, that it's affecting, and we actually make synthetic versions of those proteins in frog eggs, which is pretty fun and pretty interesting. And then we can put the toxin right onto the proteins and measure what it's doing on the proteins. But again, you can do all of that with the toxin itself that you can buy commercially. But this kind of brings us back around to why you were in Japan. Okay, so why I was in Japan is that when I did a bunch of this early work as a Ph.D. student, one of the things that I noticed 
was that in addition to heterodotoxin is that there was a, what we call a stereoisomer. It's called 6-epi-TTX. And all it means is that it's a slightly chemically modified version of the toxin. It's a minor rearrangement between two of the sort of parts of the molecule. And what I found looking at this 25 years ago is that in some populations, this version of the toxin was totally absent. But in other populations, it might represent 30 or 40 percent of the total TTX that the animals were making. And within a population, so you go to a particular pond or you go to a particular lake or something and you get animals from there, all of the animals would be producing about the same ratio. So if they produced, if 40 percent of their TTXs were 6-epi-TTX, then all of the animals looked like that. But if you went other places and they weren't producing it, then none of the animals had it. And as an evolutionary biologist, when you see those kind of patterns, there's a light bulb that goes on. But the problem was then, and the problem has been since then, is that you can buy TTX, but the 6-epi form of it, you cannot. It's not commercially available. So nobody's so making it. you can't that. do any experiments with it. So the reason that I was going to Japan was there's a lab in Sendai in northern Japan, and they are one of the world experts on biochemistry and the biochemistry of tetrodotoxins. So what I was doing there was I actually had samples from newts that I knew had lots and lots of this 6-epi. And so what we were doing was we spent about a month and a half isolating the 6-epi TTX from the TTX and purifying it to provide enough of that toxin that we can actually go back and do the experiments that we need to do to understand what it's doing in with snakes, basically. Okay, I got to know how this works. Since you've got this toxin that you get mm -hmm. over to Japan so that you can purify it and bring it back. And like, do you carry the vials in your pocket? Do you worry about TSA? How does the transport of this stuff work? Everything we did, we followed all of the appropriate <laughs> rules that we needed to follow. You know, it's interesting that you went right to that. <laughs> well, you asked me because you brought up TSA, and I just want to be really clear about this because there are a number of different rules and regulations about this, you know, in terms of all this. But how do you do it? So in this case, what we did was, so for example, within the United States now, because of issues about concerns about something called chytrid fungus, you're actually not allowed to transport tissues from these salamanders across state lines. And so I didn't transport any of them across state lines. What I did was I went out to Oregon and I collected animals out in Oregon and I took samples from the skin and I mailed the skin to this lab in Japan. And then they held on to it. And then I flew over there and so I didn't take anything over there with me and we worked on it over there. And so what we did there was we isolated it, we purified it, we separated it from the TTX, and then we packaged it very carefully in a lyophilized form that wasn't volatile or anything like that, and then we just mailed it back. So, no, I didn't carry it on the plane with me, but we shipped it back through the Japanese Postal Service and packaged it in a way that was safe and appropriate. <laughs> One of the things that I, that I joke about with my graduate students is I'm like, well, Careful of what you wish for, because one of the things about the transition from being a, a Ph.D. student to having a position like this is that I spent way more time worrying about dotting I's and crossing T's and making sure that all of the paperwork and appropriate sort of components of what we're doing are done in the way that they need to be done. You know, the permits that we need are in place and that the, you know, 
takes up a lot of time these days. So now you've got this super purified toxin, but you've only, as you said, you, you've only got a little bit of it. So I assume you've got to be judicious. How do you decide what you're going to do with it? For me, good science is we made this decision, and by we now I mean my my research partner and my or my wife and I is my research partner. We made that decision before we even started this. So we sat down and we said, okay, how much do we need to do these particular experiments? And so that's the first part of the answer. And then the second part is that we're going very slowly, right? So we are very carefully planning out and saying, okay, we're only going to get one try at this. So you should have seen the day that we got it back, we had to do something very simple, which was we had to take it and resuspend it, which means mix it back up with a little bit of liquid and then freeze it. And my wife has a PhD. I have a PhD. We've been doing this for a long time. My guess is that we spent three hours double-checking each other's math I gave her numbers and said, I think this is the amount of liquid we have to add to these to get them to the concentrations that we want. What do you think? And she looked at it and she said, fine. Then she did it independently, and I looked at it, and we went back and forth before we were like, okay, we've done this about 20 times, and we're in agreement every single time. We're okay. That's Charles Hannafin. He was part of a research team that recently reported on the convergent and parallel evolutionary paths taken to create resistance to tetratoxin in the blue-ringed octopus. And he recently returned from Japan with a vial of that really powerful poison. Charles, use it well. (laughs) Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m., If you miss us, then you can catch every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.